Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I am the editor of the TLS. Back from a well-deserved pause break and presumably sated to the brim with feta, it's the Elena Duzzi. You know it to be true. Anna, how are you? Uh, I'm very well, thank I you. I wanted to bring up pizza with you because I thought of you at the weekend. My, I, my two eldest children are 10 and 8 and I took them for pizza. I said, you can have anything you like, any topping you like. And they both said they'd like pineapple and mushroom. That's a new combination. It's weird, isn't mm-hmm. it? I would never, I think you want me to, but I would never pass judgment no. on on what your children choose to eat. But what I can tell you is, <laughs> ah, this is... <laughs> and this comes courtesy of Robert Potts, who printed this off for me. And um, he put it on my desk as well. And put it on your desk as well, did he? Okay, well, this is... Um, this is a photocopy from a forthcoming book called Signature Dishes That Matter, which is a lovely Fiden uh, edition, uh, in which there is an entry on the Hawaiian pizza, in which we learn that it was invented almost 4,500 miles from the Polynesian source okay. in, uh, in Canada, in Ontario, oh. uh, by a restaurant owner called Sam Panopoulos. He was playing with the tiki trend that had blossomed post-Second World What's War. What's tiki? Grass skirts and flowers. Oh, and, and so, he just, so he just tried to do a. Well, so and it, so it was named. The Hawaiian pizza was actually named for the particular brand of canned pineapple <laughs> that he had to hand when he was trying to create. So this it's Greek Canadian. Just for fun thing, yeah. Entry ends with a salient point, I think. Um, in 2017, the Icelandic president told school children he would ban pineapple pizza if he could, a statement he later retracted by saying that he did not have the power. <laughs> Presidents, he said, should not have unlimited power. Truth. True that. And if ever there was an example of that, I think it's the it's the lack of power of an Icelandic president to ban Hawaiian pizzas. It's a lesson to us all. Yeah. Oh God. So what does that what what does that mean, Theo? What should we take from that? Well, I, I could who knows? Who knows? I'm going to still eat it. It's lovely. Uh, if you want to subscribe to the TLS, where unbelievably we do cover things other than Hawaiian 
Greek can fusion food. Yeah, fusion food. <laughs> um, you can subscribe using these offers. If you live in the USA or Canada, go to podcast.the-tls.com. If you live anywhere else, including the UK, then go to the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod19. This week is our fawning over celebrity, the success of charisma over talent, a modern thing. And what does it tell us about ourselves? Irina Dumitrescu has written a belter of an essay on the subject and will tell us more. To tell us the sorrowful celebrity-inflected tale of Quandil Balok, the Pakistani YouTuber killed for failing to respect traditional restrictions for her sex, will also speak to Rafia Zakaria too. And there's a new film out called Bait about a Cornish fishing village, which you've seen there, haven't you? I have, yes. And happily at the test, not only do we have an editor who's seen it, we have our <laughs> own expert on Cornish fishing in Lamorna Ash, who's writing a book based in a Cornish fishing village is quite a thing. So we're going to have her on and she's going to tell us about this film. Empty celebrity is part of the spirit of our wretched age. When future historians study these troubled times, writes Irina Dumitrescu, they will marvel at the relentless rise of sea levels, strong-arm politics and Kardashians. Fame without talent means having all the external trappings of charisma without its sacred core. But how modern is it really? Irina has thought about the rise of fame babies, but notes as well that the lust for ill-deserved renown is an ancient phenomenon. Contemporary celebrity culture is a pumped-up, sped-up version of an old dance between people who want to be special and the folks who want to watch them try. And why are so many of the heroines and targets of celebrity culture women? It's a fascinating, gloriously written piece, and Irina joins Thea and me now. Irina, hello. Hello. Nice to talk to you. Uh, let's talk about the Kardashian family, who you say, like Antaeus drawing his fighting strength from the earth, is invigorated by mother notoriety, growing more powerful every time it seems <laughs> to fall. So in what way are they poster children for our age, do you think? Well, I'm not sure if they're poster children for our age. I think in a way they counteract our age. They provide the photo negative, if, if that metaphor still makes sense in today's age, um, to uh, to our culture. So on the one hand, we have a culture, at least in Western Europe and North America, which is becoming so much more aware, one hopes, of uh, the the ways we ought to be behaving to each other to be decent. Let me just put it that way. Some people might call it political correctness. And they go against everything. They don't care. They can break any rules. Uh, they um, can sell candy vitamins to children. It doesn't matter. Laxative teas. They could do it all. They can uh, appropriate fashions from other races. And they're criticized, but it makes no difference to them. And is that healthy in a way? Because one argument could be that you can take a degree of self-consciousness about performative behavior too far what people call political correctness mm -hmm. so is it a healthy jolt of 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 sort of heedlessness and that is that is that a good thing I don't really think of it as being good or bad. It certainly makes them a lot of money. So it's a good thing for their pocketbooks. I can't say that it necessarily helps any other human being on the planet. Um, let's talk about celebrity more generally then. Is, is it a definition because you quote Elton John huffing a bit about the question mm -hmm. of what a celebrity is, but does it amount to, in your view, or in the view of the people that you're, the books you've been reading, people with more charisma or nous perhaps even than talent? There's something other than ability that is making people renowned. 
today, I think. But at the same time, celebrity has often been connected to uh, to special qualities, right, including high levels of talent. Certainly, Saha Benhat was uh, was an extremely talented woman. And she was very good at performance on the stage and performance off the stage, as Sharon Marcus explains. So I do think it very often does connect to uh, to talent. It often obscures other qualities, such as the ability to lead or the ability to run a business, right? So it's it's the glossy exterior to those things. But I don't think there's anything about it that necessarily has to be empty. Um, you mentioned Sarah Barnard there. What, in what way was she um, the godmother of modern celebrity culture? I think that's the term that, that one of the books uses. Sharon Marcus's book, right, the, uh, the drama of celebrity, I think, she talks about how Sarah, Sarah Bernhardt basically, in a sense, she invented the menu, right, or the recipe for, for modern celebrity. She had no compunction about breaking societal rules. She traveled all over the world, traveled in a hot air balloon, uh, drank out of a skull reportedly as I as I write in the essay it's quite entertaining uh, <laughs> we all want to do that she, she she also acted into old age which is also quite interesting that she she didn't um, have any compunction about acting as an older woman uh, had a probably had a female lover uh, and and also was creative in other in other forms and so Sarah, um, Sharon Marcus would say she really shows us the constellation of qualities that we then see in other celebrities, such as Elvis or Madonna or the self-fashioning and all of that self, stuff. Yeah, but is that do you then extend that to Kim Kardashian or, or or even her sister Kylie Jenner? Because to a certain extent, they have the trappings of success. They might even argue they've fashioned from fairly unpromising raw materials, business empires, mm-hmm. uh, and success of a sort that is not simply. Uh, counted in notoriety. Is there a legitimate line of descendants from Sarah Bernhardt to a Kardashian? Yes, but it's like, do you know those candies that have a kind of uh, fluid core at the at the at the center? Yeah, and you kind of suck for a long time and hope to get to that really delicious <laughs> middle. Where are you they're, going with this, Arena? Yes, <laughs> I think they're they're like you. You suck for a long time, and there's no center there. There's no there there. Uh, this is what I find so fascinating is that. Uh, they don't even seem to me, and this is obviously I'm not their main audience, but they don't seem to me to be that charismatic as human beings, right? There are certainly people who don't have to be stars or anything, but when you meet them, you yeah. you have a sense of being in the in the presence of something special, electric, magnetic. You want to be close to them. You want to hear them talk more. And I don't really want to hear Kim Kardashian talk more. No. <laughs> she's, but people, she's but a people, beautiful woman. But people do, well, that's, that's more the do. point, I suppose. Yeah. People do want to see her. I'm, I'm, if, you know, for better or for worse, I'm interested in this idea that, as you put it, people turn to celebrities to feel emotion. And that can be positive or negative, And both are as satisfactory. I think you're right. And I think the other point to what I'm saying is that Really, this comes out in Sharon Marcus's book, and I think it's very true. I think she's she's right on the money on this. Celebrity and charisma are not something that people can decide to have. And people certainly can't decide for other people what charisma or what celebrity or that, that sacred core, what I call that sacred core of celebrity is. Audiences give it. Audiences grant charisma to individuals. And they can also take it away. And where does authenticity come into all of this? I think celebrities... Some celebrities are very skilled at crafting an authentic image, 
And that sense of authenticity, whether it represents something real or not, is part of what makes them so magnetic. I think Lady Gaga is doing this right now in a very brilliant way, and I find quite effective. But with, um, I think the Kardashians have shown that it's not really necessary. You could do it without, without authenticity. You can just put on a total performance that's absolute show and plastic, and it will have its own fascination. And maybe they would say to what to one person's authenticity to them is an ability and a and a willingness to open the door so wide into their lives that it almost seems authentic that they may not be or, this is all there is this is yeah but yeah. And, and you know the picture of her that she talk about with the champagne where she's nude on the cover of paper i think the magazine yes. was called some of the images that she is allowed out about you, you'd almost say lots of people would stop before that point but she's willing to go further to reveal more and that may not be authentic. It may be authentic, I suppose, but it, it's sort of pointing in the direction of authenticity because it's stripping yourself bare and showing the world. Yes, although what's funny is that photo is a reproduction of another photo by the yeah. same photographer, right? <laughs> so yeah. it's already a copy. Uh, it's uh, and then it's a copy of a copy. <laughs> so I think even even when she's bare, she's she's always imitating to some extent. Yeah, a lot of these examples we're talking about, and in the essay, are women. Um, yes. What What are we reading into in, in, into that? Is are the rules of the game different for women? Do you think? I think the rules of the game are absolutely different for women, and this is a very old phenomenon. And I gesture towards this in the essay. Women who have exposed themselves to other people, and I don't mean in the sense of nudity, but performed or been in the public sphere, uh, could be as leaders or as entertainers have always come under scrutiny and under criticism, right? Um, there is a very long prejudice in the West against women who are in public. Yeah. And we see that every time a, a female journalist tweets something and gets all of this abuse from, from trolls, uh, but it's a very old story. Yeah. So to some extent, any woman uh, taking a public role is going to come under a certain set of pretty standard criticisms and it varies a little bit on um, depending on her age right so younger women will be called sexually available typically or flighty or stupid or will be painted that way by some people older women then get to be witches right so that's sort of the the hillary clinton model right they're conniving terrifying witchy uh women right but it's usually some pretty standard models that are put onto them uh, to try and push them out of the spotlight, basically. But who's pushing them out of the spotlight? Because that's interesting, because although they might be demonized, they might be criticized, at one level, they're not being pushed from the spotlight. People are yeah. hungrily keeping them in the spotlight. It's just an un very unforgiving for spotlight. Well, they're, they're dictating the terms of the spotlight. Yeah, but, they're, <laughs> but they're, right. I suppose they're not, but they're not removing them, yeah. I guess is the argument. You're right. They're being minimized. Okay. But I think what's hard to do is to have a role have a public role as a woman in which you simply have authority based on expertise, for example. It's not yeah. impossible, right? Uh, your Mary Beard has a role like that, uh, but it's rarer. Um, well, and some people might listen to our conversation, so hang on a second, haven't you all just done the thing about Kim Kardashian that you then would <laughs> say is an illegitimate thing to do? You've taken this very successful businesswoman, her sister Kylie Jenner, is the first billionaire teenager 
in world history. They've marketed themselves brilliantly. They've shown expertise in manipulating a media system to give them untold riches. And yet we're talking about them as if they're somehow empty vessels. Are we not guilty of that same problem? I think that's that's definitely there. I wouldn't I wouldn't try to uh, to brush off that that critique altogether. Uh, at the same time, they really they're playing with those prejudices, right? They're taking the stereotypes and just working with them, and that's their right, and it's certainly to their profit. Uh, but they're not offering another model or anything like that. No, it's the whole thing of whether you you play the game by someone yeah. else's rules or you you change the game. Well, and is there a feminist approach to this? Do you think that we should be? I mean, from you know, role models are an interesting idea, I suppose. And I've got a, a daughter who's ten, and and it, are, is even the concept of role models a kind of patronising one, or should we be thinking in terms of? Because you refer to um, sort of tween popular culture, which is beginning to just terrify me, as I as I <laughs> as I, as I, as I consider. You've read a book called Tweenhood. Um, is there hope yeah. that the sort of the sort of figures that are going to be seen by my daughter's 10 so this her generation are they different from the kardashians have they developed uh, have, have, have they moved on well i have a little boy so i can't give you a very scientific answer <laughs> on that uh, i i do think there's a lot to uh, to role models i do think there's a lot to instagram right instagram seems to be <sighs> the the social medium uh that that seems to get at the tween and young young female market a lot. And that puts a, an enormous amount of pressure on them. I, I'm going to make a confession right now. I really like to watch YouTube makeup videos. <laughs> so does my daughter. So does my daughter. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a professor of medieval literature who sits around watching YouTube makeup videos. And There's I a mashup program in that idea somewhere. Contributor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> Um, Will you write uh, about that for us? There's, there must be. A, there I must can write about this for you. Yeah. Uh, so I find them absolutely fascinating, and they're this this perspective into into another world. And partly, they all comment on Instagram, right? Whether you get that Instagram look or criticize the Instagram look, yeah. which is a, a highly artificial form of makeup, right? Heavy foundation, very sculpted through um through shadow right um and very perfected and polished and this is this is a very identifiable look in the online makeup tutorial scene and I, what i find so fascinating about it is when i look on instagram of course now i'm i'm practically an old woman when i look at instagram <laughs> to me it's clear that it's all so fake right yeah. and no human being can look like the people in these photos and, and that many of them look quite annoying too, um, at least these girls in fields, right? But young people look at these photos and yeah. see a model by which they judge themselves, Yeah. right? And I, I've been talking about girls, but of course it's not just girls, right? No. It's lots of genders um, who that are looking at these at these pictures and thinking, this is where I fail. This is where I fail. This is what's wrong with me. This is I'm not I'm not thin enough. I'm I have too much acne, I don't have whatever, right? Well, and that it, seeps in, doesn't it? I mean, the thing is, that I find very striking, you can have all the role models in your family, you can have all the conversations you like in your family, mm -hmm. but ultimately it gets in through the doors and around the windows, doesn't it? Because there's access to this material and then it starts to set stereotypes for what a girl, just to take an example of a girl or a young woman, should look like. And that becomes the, the image, whatever you might say or I might say or... or or anything else might say that's that's there isn't it it's set the cultural temperature 
It's very powerful. And while the Kardashians certainly participate in that and profit from it, they could say that the most identifiable uh, symbol of it, they're certainly not the only ones. There are millions of people on there making themselves into brands and contributing to this, right? And there are very few people who are really willing to show themselves warts and all. And then they tend to make that into a brand as well. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. The hashtag no filter uh, morning shot stuff oh god well listen uh, Irina I mean A we need to talk about this some more at some other point B you need to write a piece of what connects medieval spiritualism <laughs> yeah, to uh, makeup YouTube makeup videos all right that's a deal yeah uh, uh, but thank you what a, lo- what a lo- lovely uh, thing to talk about um, Irina Dimitrescu thank you very much indeed thank you too I once my daughter had a birthday party and I asked um, Your yeah. daughter seems to be having birthday parties on a weekly basis. No, she's having <laughs> about once a year, I feel. Uh, but, and there were eight girls there, and I said, oh, what do you want to be when you're older? It's a standard boring dad question. Uh, and I think six of them wanted to be YouTubers. Really? Yeah. Um, and then my daughter said, I want to be a newsreader. I thought, oh, that's, I was really, oh, great, it's journalism, you know, almost a proper job. And then there's a pause, and she went, yeah, because that way I can get on Strictly Come Dancing. <laughs> Uh, but the, you, the idea of, and you talk to loads of kids of all of that, it, being a YouTuber yeah. is like a thing, is a total it's thing. It's a just, business. And it just did not exist when we yeah. were kids. And we sound very old and we go, oh, being a YouTuber sounds foreign. But it, it, it does and is, but it is a massive thing. There was a radio, and this is slightly different, um, I suppose, but it is still about youth and cultivating brands from such a young age and stuff. There was a, um, a feature on the radio uh, the other day, I think it was on BBC Radio 4, uh, and it was an interview with a 13 or 14-year-old who has um, built her own jewellery brand. And so she goes to school, she comes home, she does her homework, and then she spends all of the rest of the day and evening kind of working on her business and, and, and selling her jewellery and uh, and getting in touch with influencers oh, and God. planning the next day's business activities and then going to school and, yeah. uh, you know, rinse and repeat. And the way that it was being spoken about, the way she was being spoken to... Everyone was just so thrilled about this thing, and I just couldn't. I just couldn't help but feel so sad. If I had been a young listener listening to that, I would have immediately felt like total failure. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, his problem is we're about to talk about something else now, which is the same. You know, and, and look, we shouldn't be too old, fuddy duddy. Well, no, it's whatever. the whole line of when will children allowed to be allowed to be children? Yeah, That's exactly. When I was a child, all I was doing <laughs> is running around bomb shelters. Yeah, bomb like shelters. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we're old. That's the conclusion. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. I have to admit that I had not heard the story of Kandil Baloch until I read Rafia Zakari's review of a new book about her. Baloch was born Fuzia Azim, destined to a life of quiet marital submission. She rejected that. She left her son with her ex-husband and ran for independence, ending up as a YouTube star, the How Am I Looking Girl, at odds with the conservatism of Pakistan. What happened next is sad and perhaps all too predictable, and not unconnected to our last discussion about the modern world of celebrity. Rafia Zakaria is here to give us the details. Rafia, welcome. Hello. Uh, let's talk. How? What made Fuzia Azim famous? How did she become a famous woman? Well, Fuzia Azim, who eventually became Kandil Baloch, uh, was born in a, a very small village in a very ordinary and rather poor family. And her story is really a story of what is now possible in Pakistan, which means that a girl uh, or a woman who had, um, you know, who didn't have anything growing up, who didn't even receive much of an education, uh, manages to somehow educate herself and then um, harness the power of social media. And, uh, you know, I must pause here to say that, um, you know, the cell phone concentration in Pakistan it has just uh, exploded in the past five years so that a huge, huge number of the population has cell phones with internet capability, even in very, very tiny villages that are in, say, the middle of nowhere. So she harnessed that and, and, and made an identity for herself. She would post these, these videos, these YouTube videos. They were titillating and, you know, often posted late at night. But she sort of kind of had a mix of taunting her supporters and goading them on to continue to follow her. So she was kind of arch about it. She was knowing about what extremely, she was doing. Extremely, extremely, yes, she was. You know, and, and in a way, she was very smart about the divisions between it, or the the sort of, you know, hypocrisies of Pakistan in, in the sense that, you know, here were all these men who would follow her, message her, you know, secretly send her messages and invitations to meet and and whatnot but on the surface of it if, if they were asked oh do you do you like Kandil Baloch they would likely say no uh, because it was it's it's not acceptable to have that sort of a uh, uh, interest this kind of sexual prurient interest in a woman and she played on that and she was bent on exposing the fact that there's this huge sexually frustrated underworld of men that exists in the country and that is never sort of brought into uh, the daylight, so to speak, of Pakistan. This is just a small aside. I'm just wondering, did her, her, her new name, her chosen name, does it, does it mean anything? Yes, Kandil means a flame or a light. 
So, I mean, that, that definitely could have had uh, something to do with it. And then Baloch's, um, you know, and, and there's actually been controversy of her picking Baloch as a last name because that, you know, it is a famous, um, well, tribe in Balochistan and she had some connection to the tribe but um, you know wasn't really a member so in in this sort of aftermath when everyone wanted to disassociate herself themselves from her you know when the whole debacle happened uh, with the cleric and Kandil um, even they came out to say that oh this is this is just a fake name that she's taken on she has nothing to do with us we have nothing to do with her Let, let's let's talk about the, the cleric so what did she do that was so outraged the minute we've got kind of mildly titillating slightly ironic videos which ultimately bait stupid horny men and they're the villains of the piece very clearly did she do things that are seen to be more outrageous than that what happened with this telly cleric what happened was that by this time she was coming on TV and there were lots of talk show appearances. And one favorite uh, sort of little trick that these talk show hosts had would be to pit Kandil, who was obviously this YouTube star with kind of questionable piety and morals against a religious cleric because she was very unabashed and she would she would challenge them and she didn't hide the fact that she was titillating she wasn't ashamed of the fact that she made the videos and that she said things that that were provocative and so uh, this apparently happened with Mufti Kavi which who was the cleric and according to Kandil this man kept messaging her sending her you know uh, DMs and uh, texts asking to meet her alone and she says she she kind of rebuffed him a number of times but he was very very persistent and he would actually come uh you know to karachi where she was um to sit on what is pakistan's moon committee where a, a number of clerics gather to see if the new moon has been sighted and the new lunar month uh, on the Islamic calendar will start. So, so he in, in during one such visit in Ramzan, um, you know, which is the month of fasting and and even more like you, of uh, uh, sort of heightening your spiritual uh, devotion, they come. She goes to his hotel room, and uh, in the middle of this fasting month, they're eating and smoking cigarettes. And Kandil takes uh, photos and makes videos of the whole thing. She sits in the cleric's lap. She takes his hat, which is like a, you know, a, a kind of hat that's uh, usually worn by clerics, puts it on her head i mean the the you know and and essentially takes some very um kind of licentious looking uh photographs for a cleric but this, um, this and this this was obviously with his consent i mean he was party to this yeah but it's 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 odd because it seems that he didn't truly understand what would you know the the outcry that would that would result or, or or that she would actually put these out you know i mean she was never without her phone she was recording this sort of internet life of hers uh like all other sort of youtubers and instagrammers do constantly 
um, but he just seems to be um, either I don't know if like if he oh, if he was in his senses. I, I, I that's a question I've puzzled over myself. And is it not typical um, that she, that as ever it's the woman who gets the blame for this? So two two adults acting this way, uh, and the focus of the blame, particularly among conservative Pakistanis, to blame the licentious and inverted commas woman. That's actually a great point because that is the that is the way the the equation works and and so he must have just thought okay well whatever you know i'm not going to be hurt by this uh it's the woman who always takes the blame so she probably won't even dare to put these out uh but she does dare to put them off and that's when you know a just a huge explosive outcry uh occurs in pakistani society where now she has literally shown the you know sort of dark or um sexually repressed uh, underbelly of the country where even a cleric and and in particular a a pretty prominent cleric in the sense that he served on that particular committee is you know when when no one's watching he's up to this so so this idea of the shame culture you know and Pakistan is a shame culture which means it's it's very much pivoted on what is visible so you know you want to be visibly pious you want to be visibly observant and then you know there's a sort of tacit understanding that whatever happens behind closed doors or what nobody sees is um you know no one's going to talk about it and it has a almost like a sense of moral unreality how long after this meeting and how did her story end well, I mean, it, it was a, the months after the meeting, I think, became very, very difficult for Kandil because she was facing censure from lots of different quarters. She was afraid for her life. She didn't know how to proceed, really. And she ends up going to visit her parents in Punjab, in the city of Multan. And uh, for the Eid holiday, she didn't want to be uh, by herself in Karachi at her apartment. And she goes over there. And that night, her brother and his friends drug the parents you know, so they don't, they won't hear anything, and they come in the middle of the night, and uh, the brother strangles Kandil. It's fair to say that the brother and the friend who committed this crime, there's no doubt about that they did it, but they are not, as we speak, in prison for it. They weren't convicted of it. Well, they haven't yet been convicted of it, which is actually, a, a, you know, it, it shows how these cases proceed. So, in many cases, the parents or other family members, when it's an intrafamilial crime, the other family members can pardon the person that has actually done the crime, and there's no prosecution at all. In this case, her parents stayed very strong. They're very old and very poor. Her father is disabled, but they stuck to their guns all the way uh, until this summer when um, literally I think maybe a month ago they said that they were just tired of this case going on and on as you can imagine for so many years and not having any justice so they were just going to go ahead and pardon their Vasim, who's the son that um, so, so they pardoned the that son committed for, the crime so they pardoned the yes. son for killing the daughter right and then 
again there was a uh, there was outcry in pakistan and so now the multan high court in multan uh, essentially said that they were not going to accept that pardon and the case was going to proceed so now once again the hearings are being held and you know wasim and others have been have been uh, produced in court uh, i'm not sure whether the cleric is out on bail or whether he is still under arrest the, he's also one of the accused in but, the case but the broader point here is that there is a culture of and i hate the phrase honor killings because it's clearly uh, contains its own antithesis it's a ridiculous phrase at one level because it's it's trying to justify the murder of someone through a specious account of what honor is but they're called honor killings anyway there is a culture in which if people say they're murdering someone or committing a crime against someone for the sake of morality, for the sake of reputation, it is very rare for them to be successfully prosecuted. Yes, I mean, you know, uh, I, I think your critique of the term is very apt. In Kandil's particular case, the reason why I feel, you know, that honor killing doesn't quite, you know, get to the nub of it is because... She was a very particular creature of a society that's going through rapid urbanization, rapid access to the world through these internet technologies, and this consideration of what, uh, you know, was once hidden becoming more and more apparent and more and more visible. Um, so in this sense, there's not any sort of tradition or cultural element that, you know, because honor killing is, you know, is it has this connotation of a cultural crime, that it, it only happens in particular I cultures. Um, but what happened to her was was much more like, uh, you know, a mix of celebrity worship versus, um, you know, these uh, these internet sort of provocateurs and bending the rules of society and pushing the boundaries and seeing what you can get away with. It's a it's um, an, it's an incredible story, uh, Rafia, um, and you know, and you can see the the modern morality tale aspect for it. Uh, thank you so much for for taking the time to to write about it for us and 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 for talking about it with us now. Thank you so much. This has been great. Thank you. I kind of feel like she's, I quite like her. Well, yeah, and, and the story, you know, um, Rafia just told us the story and, and, and investigated it for us, but we should also say that the, the book itself by Sanama, on which this uh, a woman like her is the book, it's, it's a really good book. Yeah. It's a really, it was a real undertaking, I think, to, to produce. Um, she went off to interview various people who met Candil at various junctures in her life and so many people wouldn't talk to her. Yeah. It's a real undertaking. It's a, it's a great book and it's a great review of the book. Because it's big, the problem is they want to su- there's a sort of societal desire to suppress mm. this stuff, which is hence the problem in itself. Exactly. Lovely, great stuff. Well, it's, well, and it's Bloomsbury who published it, uh, A Woman Like Her by Sanam Maher. Every now and again, a film comes along that really, truly mesmerises. Bait, a film written, directed and edited, not to mention laboriously developed by the filmmaker Mark Jenkin, is such a film. Set in a small, unnamed Cornish fishing village, Bait centres on the tense relationships between Martin Ward, a local fisherman now unable to afford a boat, and the Lees, an affluent family from upcountry, whose arrival in the village has changed the very fabric of the place. 
The newcomers have bought up the old fishermen's cottages, including the one in which Ward and his brother were born, and turned them into shishi holiday rentals, with complimentary bottles of fizz in each fridge. As Lamorna Ash says, writing in this week's TLS, early on comes the realisation that there is nowhere for the narrative to go but towards some form of tragedy. To this timeless tale of the clash between them and us, rural and metropolitan tradition and the future, add a bold cinematic aesthetic reminiscent of Louis Buñuel and Salvador Dali's cut-up dream logic, and you've a film that lingers and unsettles long after the credits finish rolling, and the credits are incidentally very short, as you might expect, of a film with such a tiny budget. Um, I saw Bait a couple of weeks ago, and I am still turning it over and over now. Uh, Lamorna Ash is here to tell us more. Hello, Lamorna. Hi. Um, had you heard much about Bait before you went to see it? And I ask this because I know that you're in some ways very much connected with Cornish fishing She's a Cornish fishing <laughs> village expert. <laughs> Definitely not an expert. I actually was in Newlyn, in the village where Mark Jenkin came from, whilst I knew they were doing the filming. Ah. So I actually had met um, Callum, who was the script editor on the film, just afterwards. And he had that kind of amazing, because it had been filmed in four weeks, and they'd all really lived amongst one another whilst making it. He almost had the, the come down of that, that. He said it was the most extraordinary experience, because... It was a film that Mark Jenkin, who had been trying to make, I think for 20 years, this has been the film he was sort of like um, waiting inside him. And so this was this amazing release of having finally made it together. Wow. I mean, well, critics have been uh, raving about it. Mark Commode, I think he called it the British film of the decade or something like that. Yeah. Um, what oh was your first God. impression of the film? Well, you can't help but be surprised by it because I think one becomes so used to the kind of cinema where you have these slick, beautiful, quick edits and everything is glossy and there's a CGI. And for to sit down and the um, the screen to shorten because it goes and it's, it's all filmed in analog and black and white, it's immediately so striking. And the first image, which is a close-up of the main character, and to hear the sound so they filmed all of the sound was done in Foley Studios afterwards and so it meant that Mark Jenkins got to choose what sound he wanted in terms of rather than allowing every single bit of sound so you hear these really heavy footsteps and this close up on this man's face so it's immediately so striking and unlike other things I'd seen So who goes to see this? I mean always just in, in films very auteur-y films because like you say they're not that common in some senses now that you know one of the stories of the film industry is a kind of the overwhelming effect of 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 franchises in in Hollywood, who 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 goes to see this film? Who should go and see this film? Well, I, I mean, I suppose it's easy to say that everyone should see it, but it doesn't. It's selling so well that I mean, to begin with, it was just at Venice Film Festival. I don't think they knew that it would end up being on general release, but certainly when I went and saw it, the whole cinema was packed. Um, and I think also there's there's that sense that somewhere that we know, but don't know too well the idea of somewhere in Cornwall and we know about fishing communities and they have a loud voice and kind of in our understanding of what Britain is. So I think people, that appeals to people because they want to know more and they want to see that on a screen. Well and at its core it is also a really good melodrama with real kind of strong strands there's the you know the Romeo and Juliet strand almost. Yeah of, yeah. Of, um, um, yeah my, my friends and I we came out and we were kind of discussing that I don't know what it would have looked like if it had been fully in colour and if it had been filmed in a kind of uh, the way one expects because some of it, it is really heightened and melodramatic and almost soap operatic at times. Absolutely. And somehow, yeah, but when that's in black and white, it because it comes strange and things are filmed out of sequence as well, it does something so much greater and kind of... Uh, 
I don't know, more profound than what it would have done in colour, I think. Did you did you did you struggle at all? Is there a struggle with um with Jenkins' approach to characterization? Because it, I mean it's uneven. In in terms of the the fact that the other characters are sort of awful, the English characters. Yes. <laughs> um, Hugo. I don't know. English yeah, as opposed Hugo to Cornish. It, well, they're from they're down you know, they're down yeah. from up there. They're presumably down from London. Yeah. Yeah. Is it you drawing a distinction between English and Cornish? I just thought, is that is that that's a distinction. No, I'm I'm drawing the distinction between the way um Jenkin portrays the the locals yeah. and, and and everyone yeah. everyone else. Yeah, I wondered about this because definitely the daughter of the Lays who's uh, kind of spends a lot of the time rolling her eyes at her family and ends up going out with one of the fishermen. She seems to um transcend that kind of stereotype that they do for the rest of the characters as sort of like English, um, upper class, tight lipped, difficult, not quite understanding the, the, the rest of the village and saying we're part of this community while <laughs> clearly having a detrimental impact on it. But when I thought about it, I thought you always have to think about the intention of of the, the auteur and he didn't want to tell a story that showed the complexities of tourists and the complexities of English people and I suppose there are enough of those films but for him this is what the people from those villages see and they only get these people for a couple of weeks over summer. Perhaps when they are, they are on holiday and the young youngsters are getting drunk and perhaps they're not behaving how they ought to. So I think it makes a lot of sense to not allow them to be complicated, difficult characters and to just focus on the Cornish characters being that. I, yeah, I, it's hard to see, but I, I think it works the way he's chosen to do it. Can I ask a foolish question? Yeah. Is this, are we in the realms of a parable about divided communities and rural and metropolitan and them and us and and people with a different sense of what a community should be are we in dreaded b word not bait territory (laughs) yes we definitely are and i think jenkins been asked this because i saw it as mentioned he's been asked this by a lot of people um at the film premieres and different um Sort of obvious question I would ask if I were interviewing him, to be honest. (laughs) Yeah, well, actually, so a really interesting thing is because, again, they did the sound afterwards, they were able to kind of play however they wanted to. So when there's one point when um, they do amazing intercuts between uh, the fishermen um, laying out nets and then the family inside the house, and they've got Radio 4 playing on their MacBook as they're drinking expensive white wine, and it's actually a Brexit story. (laughs) So it's it's very quiet and you can barely hear it, but it's kind of... that wink to say we know that this is that time and that this is a really important thing to be thinking about so and, it's definitely in there and what's his argument because uh, from what you're both saying there's a certain reduction to simplicity which in lots of respects is never helpful when talking about uh, brexit you know everything's always uh, oversimplified to the point of polarization is he making a point that is sufficiently nuanced to be a worthy contribution to all of us I think definitely because it's a character study. So it's not facts and figures and there's no propaganda involved, but it just shows you very clearly something that's definitely happened in Cornwall. Well, I don't know if this is about Brexit so much, but the fact these communities are so poor and they are angry and they're trying to direct that anger towards something. And certainly in Cornwall, where the majority did vote Brexit, that seemed to be towards immigration and kind of things that actually weren't happening in Cornwall. But that's what he's trying to show is more localised than that. And that's the way that that community is being dislocated and the way that so everybody who actually grew up in the village has now moved to council property further inland and they kind of recreate their community there. So I think actually the hostility is more towards maybe the, the upper class families who've come in and the fact that no one protected these properties. So it meant that it 
now I think they've changed it and there's some new laws coming in so that you can't have as many second homes or you get taxed more. So that's starting to change. Any cries about simplicity or the use of archetypes and, 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 and whatever in this film is mitigated to a great degree by the aesthetic, the style of it. Because he's chosen such a such a strange to the normal kind of to the normal cinema goer's eye approach to it, it does unsettle those kind of. But is that right? I, mean, I find that really interesting because I, I, I hear both of you making that argument. But it, you know, and and I'm not saying having seen. That, I'm just interested on the broader point that just because you film something in black and white, just because and that's you, not what it's about. But what I'm saying is, if you if you're shifting the aesthetic, does that justify? Uh, the narrative it creates well it creates a distance and it makes you look at it and listen to it differently and especially with the sound something really peculiar happens with him having Mm. put the sound on afterwards where language becomes kind of unhinged from what's happening so there's this one scene where uh, the Lees arrive down um, in their big Range Rover and park outside and um and go uh, to the front door, open it up, and someone else arrives from wherever it is that they've come from up country as well. And the two women, who both look pretty similar, um, look at each other and say, oh, so you've arrived too? And the other one says, yes, seven-hour drive. The other one rolls her eyes and says, oh, well, at least we're here. And the other one then just goes, yeah. And it's the most inane, just banal you know, uh, exchange there. And it just... It's just this slight disjointing which just makes you then for the rest of the film just listen to language and exchanges differently. It's, it's very it. difficult to explain why that why that's important, apart from that it just is. Do you buy that, Lamorna? I think, yeah, I do. I think what I was going to say as well is that it's not that one justifies the narrative. I don't think that you can... Um, uh, what's the word? I don't think you can split them in that way. I think they're so intertwined that the way that that story works is a part of the filming, but I don't think it's that one justifies the other they just they grew together mm-hmm. so it's this style that Jenkins been working on for years and his other amazing short films on YouTube similarly use this style where it's all all the sound comes afterwards so and I think it plays into the writing because it's something that he, he is used to doing now where he says that the writing the language doesn't actually matter that much but it's almost just this strangeness that comes in occasionally and often they are talking in uh, I don't know, just a few kind of Cornish dialect words and strange things that the, it's almost like the words don't matter so much. And it made and you think. And it made you think what you said. What I find fascinating because you, you've someone who is not just a tourist to Cornwall. You've gone to to, to study it. You've lived there as, a, as someone who's writing about it, which is slightly different. But it has unsettled you this film, hasn't it? Because it's basically made you think. Hang on a second. Am I the sort of person who doesn't belong? Yeah, I think I've known that for a long time because despite my my mum grew up in Cornwall, but I will I will be that voice. I will always be the posh Londoner when I go down to Cornwall. And I'm really aware, and it's been a kind of sad thing, maybe of growing up a place, thinking about the impact you'll have if you move somewhere, that, you know, you don't just get to go somewhere and say, this is now mine, I'm now part of this. And you can return to it and you can have a positive impact and you don't necessarily have to cause harm. But I realise you can't just uproot yourself and say, OK, I'm now part of your community. Why not? Because Why not? Is that not, is that not what, 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 you know, who? no one owns a community, no one owns a patch of land. No, like, there's a kind of, no, I know, a kind of clubbiness right. and, that is frustrating. Maybe I'll change my mind later about this. But well, I do no, think that... I think this reflects well on you, Lamorne. It's just that I think there is a certain insularity that frustrates the hell out of me. I don't feel I own any part of the world where I grew up or otherwise. Why well, should anyone have the temerity to say this place is theirs more well, than no, but in, in this no, no, film... But I don't think it's that. I think it's that if you move somewhere, someone else is maybe moving away. And it's, it, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't, but it's being conscious of that. Of how can I join a community and 
not make it worse or how can I join a community and truly become a part of it and I do think it's difficult because if you're going somewhere where for you the rent feels a lot cheaper that means that the people who can't afford that are moving out and I don't know and if you're going to have a second home it means you're not going to be there over the um, sort of quite a lot of the seasons and therefore it becomes like a ghost town and other people who live there all their lives can't afford to be there that's so a, I, don't know, I just think yeah. it's worth being conscious of. I think that also there's, there's a distinction, is there not, between second homes with the economic consequences, as you say, of second homes versus um, moving somewhere. I, you know, exactly. I, it's, yeah. it's, it, there's an ecosystem and there's a balance to be struck and one house is enough for everyone. But there's a kind of British <laughs> cliche. Yeah. And you get it in Yorkshire as well, that people who've only been there 150 years are not welcome and they're seen as newcomers because there is this insularity where having been part of a place is seen as a virtue and there's yeah. a, which transmits itself as a certain standoffishness. And that's often treated as praiseworthy. And to me, it seems the very opposite of that. Yeah, I think you're right. I think, I, I think that I was really shocked the first time I went because I'd never thought that way. I really, and I had that kind of young person thing that I want to go everywhere and I want to belong everywhere. And I, was, I don't Good think I've ever heard someone say that you can't. Well, maybe you can, but I don't know. I think because in London... It, it really is everyone is from everywhere and there's a place for everyone in a way and I understand it but it, it doesn't work in, in quite the same way and I don't know I think it also comes because this is we're talking about this late in the game that these places have already changed yeah. changed a long time ago so actually some of it is a sorrow about something that's already happened so when more people come it, it's almost like they're nostalgic for, for a shift that happened to those communities a long time ago places like Mausel are already entirely tourist villages no one lives there anymore that that yeah. grew up there really yeah it's a, and look to be honest we're not going to do it. I think it's a really I mean, what's interesting about this film the way you've both talked about it and the way you've written about it the Warner is it makes you think about those those issues of belonging and well place. anything that is strange yeah. enough to make you look at something that you might see every day just a little bit differently or yeah. listen to it a little yeah. bit differently that's I think the point yeah. Mm. All right. All right. I'll, 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 I'll shut up. Go and see it. Oh, yeah. All right. I'll go and see yeah, it. Fine. Go see Fine. It. Be like that. I'll go see it. Uh, Lamorna. It there you go. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, I could get the sense of that from both of you. Uh, Lamorna, thank you very much indeed. No worries at all. Thank you very Bye. much. Yeah. It's an interesting. The, the idea of the, the value of place is an interesting. It's an interesting one. But you love this film. I did love this film. Is it, I did. Is it short? Uh, it's. I think it's about an hour and a half. It's ah. the perfect film. It's like the three-minute pop song. Yeah, perfect. That's all you want. That's all you want. That's all. Talking of things going on too long. That's all we have time for this week. Uh, thanks go to Lamorna Ash, Irina Dumitrescu and Rafia Zakaria. Get your copy of the TLS this week for a Middle Eastern special and all sorts of other good stuff. Or do get subscribing. Next week, we look more particularly at the issue of gender. Fathers, mothers and Susan Sontag. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.